Man, and thank you, Matt, and uh, want to add my Easter morning greetings to all of you for centuries and centuries. When the church has gathered on Resurrection Sunday, they've greeted one another by this little refrain where someone up front will say, he is risen. All those in attendance will respond by saying, he is risen indeed. So we're going to try that. I'm going to say it like this. He is risen. Thank you, all of you, for saying that the right way, and not like one of our pastors who has a tendency to say, yeah, you bet. That's true, but we want to be like all together saying the same thing. So on behalf of all of Bethel, welcome as we proclaim the resurrection. Those of you who are literally sitting above us on the third floor, who are below us on the first floor, here on the second floor, or watching remotely, we're so glad that you have joined us for Easter as we proclaim the fundamental foundational truth that Jesus is alive. Now already this morning, some of you have noticed and drawn particular attention to the fact that I'm wearing a suit. That's right. And it's not even a rental. It's mine. And the reason is I always wear a suit to a funeral. I've had the privilege of doing a great many funerals and I always wear a suit to honor and dignify the deceased and the family of the deceased. But this morning's different. This morning, I wear a suit to honor the one who actually made the deceased. Because as Matt's already mentioned, when we come together at Easter, it is because we are having, in a sense, a celebration for the death of death. For the Christian... Death is done. It is defeated. Oh, we'll go through a separation phase, but it's defeated. The sting has been removed. And so what I want us to carry with us this morning as we gather together in worship, but as we walk out of here as well, is that Easter is a funeral for death. When we gather together, it's not just to say, yes, I go to church, and yes, I'm a Christian, and yes, I love me some Jesus. Yes, but that death is is defeated. And this is our funeral. We sing songs together. We proclaim that death is done. It no longer has sway. It no longer gets to have any sovereignty over our emotions or feelings or fears. Now, how did we get here? A couple nights ago, some of us gathered in this very building and we commemorated, celebrated Good Friday. We talked about the trials. Oh, for seven went the authorities trying to convict Jesus of anything. They went oh, for seven, and yet they still declared him guilty. The psalmist wrote a thousand years before Jesus. David wrote in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. Oh, that sounds like the life of Jesus. And they led him up the hill of the Lord, where he was killed in shame, innocently, for the sake of the wicked who deserved to be in that place. And that was our refrain as, the, as we studied Barabbas, the son of the father, the, the representative of every man, that as we look into the eyes of the Savior and the sufferer, that it should have been me in that place. There should have been a fourth cross, as it turns out, and I deserved every bit of it. But just like Barabbas, those chains fell free, declared righteous, walking in newness of life. Well, that brings us now through Saturday of shadow into Easter Sunday morning. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. 
Now, at the end of the crucifixion narrative, Matthew tells us that the Jewish leaders were very nervous about the disciples and Jesus' followers hatching a plot that would be worse than the first plot, saying that he was Messiah. And so they said, we want you to send soldiers to the tomb and to seal it up tight so that they don't steal his body because then they'll try to create this myth and legend. Pilate says, fine, I'm done with all this. Take some soldiers, seal it up as nice and tight as you can. Now, Matthew is going to continue in chapter 28 with the resurrection narrative. We have to understand as we're reading the gospel of Matthew that Matthew is writing for a very specific audience and purpose. Matthew is trying to convey and convince us that Jesus is the rightful king in the line of David. Jesus is the Davidic king. It's why he gives us such a long genealogy, the origins of Jesus, both on his mother's side and on Joseph's side. Jesus is the rightful king. Keep that in mind. Verse 1 of chapter 28. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, it's really interesting. Matthew does not say after the third day. We've just heard about the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus. Matthew doesn't say after the third day. Matthew's trying to tell us something, that a new dawn has begun, has inaugurated, a new kingdom age, a new administration, you might say, has begun. The king has landed, and this king lived, and he died, and he was buried. But the king has started and inaugurated and instigated the new kingdom age. The Sabbath would have begun Friday at sunset, but now it's Sunday. And so Matthew calls it toward the dawn of the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene, and you know, the other Mary. How'd you like that? For 2,000 years, you're sort of immortalized in Scripture as, you know, the other Mary. Like, you're not even like the Mary. You're the other Mary. And not only that, you happen to bear the most common name in all of Israel. Pretty much everybody had at least three daughters, two of which were named Mary. Mary A and Mary B, because it's the, the sister of Moses, Mariam in Hebrew, and everybody wanted their daughter to be named Mary. And so everybody's named Mary. But we're told that there is this Mary Magdalene. Now, apart from Jesus, you got to get this. Apart from Jesus, Mary Magdalene is the most central character in all of the gospel writers' narratives about the resurrection. It's Mary. And we know an awful lot about her. Now, unfortunately, through history, the church has decided to sort of add to her character unnecessarily and unhelpfully. We know that she was not married. We know that she was from a town called Magda. Magda means tower in Hebrew. And so we believe there's probably a Roman garrison there of soldiers and was also a fishing village. So, you know, you mix soldiers and fishermen, I'm sure it's the height of morality, right? Just like it is today. And yet she's not married and somehow she has resources to fund a lot of Jesus's ministry. We don't know how. We think perhaps she was an innkeeper in Magda on the northeast corner of Galilee, or northwest corner of Galilee. We don't know for sure. But that wasn't the worst of her problems. No, no, no. She was possessed, not by one, not two, not three, but by seven wicked spirits. Her life was an absolute dumpster fire traveling on a train wreck on a boating accident. It was the worst possible chaos imaginable. And that's no accident. See, what Matthew is doing, what John is doing, is recreating the Genesis narrative. You might remember Genesis 1, 1. In the beginning, God. And the Spirit of God hovered over the chaos, the void, the, the wild, untamed, unknown. Except that when Jesus comes, that wild chaos, oh, it's a person. 
It's Mary Magdalene. And the Spirit of God, Jesus, comes to her to redemptively recreate. This is going to be the message of Matthew, that the king has come, and he's not just creating all over again. It's a redemptive recreation. And so these two women come. Where were the other disciples? Basically in the fetal position somewhere back in Jerusalem or maybe in a village in Galilee. We're not sure. But they weren't where they were supposed to be. That's instructive. Watch what happens next. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, because that happens every day in Israel, not so much. But that's okay. Matthew's going to explain this. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. (laughs) And just for good measure, he sat on it. I mean, because that just doesn't quite happen every day. So it's not enough that the angel just poof, comes out of heaven, who apparently looks like he's wearing lightning overalls. He comes out of heaven, he rolls the stone away, and then, just for good measure, he sits on it, as if to say, go ahead, go ahead, Oliver Rome, try to roll it back. (laughs) You're not going to close the tomb back up. He's open, it's staying open, he's sitting on it. This is to demonstrate the sovereignty of God and his stamp of approval. God approves of this program. So he sits on this stone. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. I want you to remember, these are Roman soldiers. They're professional killers, battle-hardened. They've seen battle. They've seen men live and die after horrible wounds. But they see lightning pants and they're flopping. They're down. There's no way. And they're just, it's too much for them. And so they're out cold. Aha, but watch this. For fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, who was like, big whoop, we see this all the time. The women were not frightened. I'm not sure what that is. There's a whole connection with childbirth somehow. I don't know. They're not afraid somehow. The angel's like really glad to see them. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know what you seek, Jesus who was crucified. You kind of get the impression that the angel has been waiting and waiting, like looking at his not having a watch all day Saturday, like now, 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 now. When can I roll it out? When can I roll away the stone? Not so that Jesus can get out, you understand, so that the women could see in. The scriptures tell us over and over again that the angels long to look into the relationships between God and humanity. God who is holy, 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 and man who rebels, rebels, rebels. How can this be? God must be incredibly great and glorious and gracious. And you get the impression this angel can't wait to be the first to say, come, come and see. Come, ladies, I'm on your side. I love this Jesus like you do. Come and see. Just come, come. Don't worry about those guys. They're going to be all right. You come, 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 come and see. And then he tells them to go and tell. And that little refrain has echoed for 2,000 years. The angel said it once, and since then it's been our job. Come and see, and then we go and tell. I know you're looking for this Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. Why? For he has risen, as he said, come see the place where he lay. These two women go really just with spices to embalm the body of Jesus. Even they didn't fully understand and get who this Jesus was, 
what he would accomplish. You would think as much as Jesus talked about being lifted up as the Son of Man, using this Daniel 7 language, that I will be lifted up, I will be cut off, but the Son of Man will rise again. You'd think the disciples would have called a lock-in and would have just spent the night there waiting for for the stone to be rolled away. Nope, they didn't get it either. And that's encouraging because oftentimes as disciples, we don't get it. Verse 7, then, go quickly and tell his disciples. You see there? Come and see, go and tell. Go tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you so. They departed quickly. Always a good idea when Lightning Pants sends you on a mission. You just, you just hop to. You just go. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold... Jesus met them and said, Greetings! <laughs> oh, man. Now, even that's fascinating. Kairete in Greek. I want to remind you of the previous three days of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, who endured seven fraudulent trials, never once opened his mouth to defend himself so that nobody could say he was trying to get out of it. He was in complete control the entire time, and they scourged him essentially removing all of the flesh from his torso, front and back. And they punched the creator of the cosmos in the face. And they spat on him. And the text tells us they ripped out his beard and they mocked him. And then they nailed him to the cross and he died. Yielded up his spirit and he was dead. Now in complete transparency, if I come back to life after that, the first word out of my mouth probably isn't going to be grace, which is why it's a really good news that I'm not Jesus. The first thing he says is not, well, you No, he didn't make a parking lot of the Western Hemisphere. He says grace. Like the first thing he cannot wait to do, because this is what he's like, is to just aim grace at them. Unsuspecting, undeserving, unprepared, Grace and Jesus met them right in the middle of their grief, and their receptivity is filled with his presence. They went there looking for a place, but instead they encountered a person. Now, I would be foolish to think that some of you didn't come to church on Easter merely hoping to go to a place because it's Easter. It's the Western world. This is what we do. But I pray and have been praying that for some of you, you will actually encounter the person because Jesus is alive. Come, come and see, come and see. We're not making this stuff up. He's alive. And then go with us as we go and tell. They meet Jesus and he says to them, greetings, and they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. And he goes, whoa, this is awkward, stop it. No, no, no. No human can permit worship except this one because he's also God. He says, Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now, just to have some sort of different color in this commentary, sort of like a sporting event. You have a play-by-play, then you have a color commentator. We're going to get a different camera angle on this. So if you've got your Bible, keep your finger there. Go to the Gospel of John, chapter 20. Gospel of John, chapter 20. Very, very quickly, we're just going to start in verse 11 and move through this very quickly because I want you to see this. Whereas, whereas Matthew's trying to say that Jesus is the rightful king in the line of David, John's got a different point. 
Mark is saying he's the suffering servant. Luke is saying he is the man. John is saying Jesus is God. And so when he sets this up, John's got a sort of a different thrust and a theme to writing his gospel account. So John chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. Still back to Mary, standing in the garden. But Mary stood weeping. It's this visceral, cathartic, sort of doleful, wailing mourn that she's doing. She stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Now, this is not wasted geospatial language that John is using here. Mary looks in, and so there's still an angel over there having a twix sitting on the stone that he'd rolled away. And then there's two angels inside the tomb, one seated at the foot, one seated at the head. That's really interesting. Why is that? Because John wants us to know something, that God is satisfied fully. See, in the Old Testament, Moses and his brother Aaron and Bezalel, one of the craftsmen, were commanded to make an Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God would go. And on the top of the Ark of the Covenant was to be the mercy seat. And on top of the mercy seat on either side was an angel, a cherub with his wings outstretched. And onto the top of the Ark, the blood of the spotless, sinless lamb would be sprinkled as an atonement, as a propitiation where God would be satisfied temporarily. This is God's way of saying, see there? I have received the blood of this spotless, sinless lamb who happened to be God himself, who was my begotten, who was my son, whom I love. I approve. And my stamp of approval is that I raised him to life. He is alive. He is not here. And Mary, this one who had been in chaos and calamity, who was laid claim of by Jesus, gets to be the one to see these two angels and God's stamp of approval. Verse 13, they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they've taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Can you imagine the one who's rescued her? And she thinks, how could this possibly be worse? What have they done now? There's no hope. It was all a dream perhaps. Oh no, 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 no. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And we sort of hear that in 2021, and we think, it's a little bit harsh, dude. Can you not say, like, yo, hun? Or, no, no, you wouldn't say that. What do you, what do you, it's kind of hard to just call her woman. Ah, but there's a reason. Remember, this is a redemptive recreation, a recapitulation of the Genesis narrative. As Adam, the first king of the world, goes into a death-like trance, a sleep, a death-like experience, and out of her comes a woman. And what is the first thing Adam says? He says, woman, from my death, you have been given life. And then he calls her Eve. In the same way, watch this. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Just as Adam called her woman, then he called her Eve. Jesus says, woman, I am redemptively recreating a new kingdom in a new garden. This time, the gardener will not fail, Mary. And she hears that name called by her master, and it gets her as it should. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. That's such good news. Because you kind of expect Jesus to go, you go and tell my brothers that I sure did miss them at the cross. 
Like, we're worthy on that one. No, he doesn't say that. I'm returning to my God and your God. I am returning to my Father and your Father. You see, they have not disqualified themselves from his grace, even by their cowardice and their failure. He still has them as the perfect big brother. Verse 18, Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he has said these things to her. Now, let's flip real quickly back to the Gospel of Matthew and see how Matthew concludes this passage. Matthew chapter 28, back in verse 11. Meanwhile, while all that's going on in the garden, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Exactly all that had taken place because if you flop on the ground because you were afraid of lightning pants, they take your sword and they drive it through your neck because you failed while on duty. Or if you lose your charge, whether living or dead, if you lose your prisoner, they kill you. Now, if you lose a dead prisoner, you get killed as you're being made fun of for losing a dead guy. So they go and they make up some story that, well, yeah, it's the weirdest thing that happened. They went and said all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. It must have been a huge chunk of change because for the soldiers to admit that the body was gone and the seal was broken was a death sentence for them. But they must have thought, this is enough money, it's worth it. And they said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. By the time Matthew writes his gospel, there was this rumor, this story. Matthew, having been a government employee, a tax collector, like the chief IRS agent of the region of Palestine, knows what bribes and, and cheating scandals are. He used to do them. He's writing this little narrative to nip all of that in the bud. Now then, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee. See, that just feels wrong. Like, no, there should have been 12. Where is the 12th? Oh, that's right. He betrayed Jesus, refused to have his blood on his hands, and killed himself. So even the fellowship of this company has been fractured. The 11, they go to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. <laughs> but some doubted. Like, how can this be in the Bible? Like, this, this is the strangest passage. Like, we saw him feed thousands. We saw him walk on water. We saw him heal sick people. We saw him raise people from the dead. Remember that whole Lazarus thing? That dude was stanky. You remember all the signs and the wonders and how good he was. We saw him scourged. We saw him mocked and beaten. We saw him on the cross. We saw him dead. We saw him buried. And now here he is, and his appearance is like that of the sun. He's gorgeous. He's glowing. He's glowing. Glorified, and yet some went, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to need to say a little something else here. See, so when we're tempted to think, if I could just get a sign or a wonder of God, if you could just show me, no, no, not really. That wouldn't even convince you. These are the disciples who are with him in person, and some of them are doubting. Now, I don't think that they're doubting that Jesus is actually alive. They see him there. They're still doubting that this is the actual program and that they are a part of it. They're going, God, you gotta be kidding me. Jesus, after all of our failures, after all of our falling awayness, you still want us to be a part of your program of the, of the come and see and the go and tell? But, 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 and Jesus, oh, well, listen, boys. Easter is a funeral for death. You have nothing to fear. Watch what he says next. 
And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In other words, my word of approval trumps your word of disapproval. And that's very good news. And we all need to hear that. Jesus' word of approval far surpasses our word of disapproval. And that word of our disapproval comes nonstop, 24-7, through the world, the flesh, or the devil. But Jesus says, I have all authority on heaven and on earth, and I say to you, it's been given to me, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. How do we do that? By baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You see, Easter is the funeral for death. Jesus says, I want you to come and see. I want you to go and tell. Easter is all about the resurrection. So let me give you three points of implication for why Easter should matter to all of us that we can all walk out of here with. Number one, it goes like this, because maybe some of you are here and you're not even quite sure why it's just Easter and you got dragged here and you're thinking, uh, what time's lunch? It's coming. Stick with me. First point goes like this. The resurrection is possible. I work in a coffee shop, more or less, and I have a lot of conversations, and sometimes it's like, you know, that, that's impossible. Nobody can come back from the dead. That's a scientific fact. And they go, whoa, 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 whoa. Based upon what? How, how, how do you know that? Well, scientific, no, no, no. There's no science to prove that no one's ever done that. There's not. You can't, there's no such thing. The resurrection is possible. Then we get into this conversation and say, is there such a thing as God or the spirit realm? And they go, well, yeah, of course I believe that, but I said, no, 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 no. If there's a God, then by definition, he must be strong. He must be pretty powerful, at least powerful enough to create however you think he created. If there's a God, he must have some power, right? Right. Well, then creation is kind of a big deal. Bringing one person back to life, not that big of a deal. It is possible. Can you grant that? Well, maybe. But what if I'm an atheist? Well, that's your issue. But even still, the resurrection is possible. Because if you are an atheist, that means that everything just happens. And if everything just happens, then the resurrection could just happen. Because anything could just happen, mathematically, scientifically, it could just happen. So whatever camp you are in, whether there's no spirit realm or there is a spirit realm with a God who is good and all-powerful, the resurrection is possible. Now, you have to maintain some intellectual integrity to say, okay, the resurrection is possible, so, well, I'm glad you asked. Because point number two, the resurrection of Jesus is historical fact. That's why we gather at Easter. We're not hoping. It's not a myth, not a legend. Since it is possible, we're saying that the entirety of the New Testament is saying that it is historical fact. The entirety of the Old Testament is saying that this is going to happen. This is the trajectory of God's redemptive plan with mankind. Messiah will come. He will suffer. He will die. He'll be buried. He will rise again. And the New Testament confirms it again and again and again. There are so many witnesses to his walking around life. There's no witnesses to the creation Nobody was there with TikTok going, wow, we have light and day. And somehow a smartphone already. Nobody's doing that. And the same way nobody was actually there in the tomb to see what God did with Jesus, we just know that it happened. Like it did with creation, like it did with the resurrection, the redemptive recreation. But what we know is there are nine different resurrection appearances by Jesus. Nine. And they are not accidental, they are not coincidental, they are very deliberate and on purpose under the sovereignty of God. Jesus appears to nine different sets of people. First, and all these different kinds of people, he appears to Mary Magdalene, the sorrowful, the distraught, the downtrodden, and the defeated. 
Risen Jesus comes to her. Secondly, to the 10 disciples who were hiding in an upper room, those who were afraid, who were fearful, who were, who were doubting all over themselves, the resurrected Jesus comes to them. Number three, he comes to Thomas individually, the doubter. Unless I see and touch, I won't believe. Jesus goes, oh, you mean these right here? You mean this? Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. This isn't the pencil sharpener, actually. Go ahead. No, 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 he didn't do that. Thomas, who doubted, has a one-on-one -on -one encounter with Jesus because Jesus meets those kinds of people where they are. Number four, Peter. Discouraged at his betrayal, at his fragility, at his inability to stand and claim Christ, Jesus comes to him and enacts a threefold restoration of Peter for the discouraged person. James, oh, the biological half-brother of Jesus, who while Jesus was alive said, I do not believe that you are the Christ. I played kickball with you. I almost beat you twice. You can't be Jesus. You can't be the Christ. And he was guilty because he refused to believe that his half-brother was the Messiah. And Jesus comes to him individually for the guilty person. The sixth appearance, we have the men on the road to Emmaus who were simply confused. The resurrected Jesus comes to the confused people. Isn't that good news? Because we need that. Even to them, he comes to the confused people. Peter and the others fishing, the seventh appearance. These powerless men who are trying in all their own strength to just get back to normal. We're just going to go back to what we know to go fishing and they can't do anything. The resurrected Jesus comes to them. Eighth, to 500 people at a time, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, to 500 people see the risen Lord Jesus. And you know what their names were? Nope. And that's the point. Not only does Jesus in his resurrected life come to doubting men, guilting men, distraught women, fearful, all these people who were rebels, who were guilty, he also comes to the insignificant. And that's very good news. Essentially, there's no one to whom the resurrected Jesus does not make a resurrected appearance to say, come and see, come, come, come and see. Now go and tell. And then finally in Galilee to his disciples to charge them officially with all authority on heaven and earth, come and see, go and tell, teach them, baptize them, make disciples. His final appearance is to charge, to go and make disciples. And so the third point, the resurrection changes everything. Since it is possible, and since we have historical evidence that it is true, what if you and I actually allowed ourselves to believe it? Will we stop living according to a different age in which we have to earn or achieve or accomplish everything? Because that's not who we are. We have been named redemptively, recreated by Jesus. We are the people because of the finished work of Christ on the cross and his subsequent resurrection from the dead that live net of the resurrection effect. And the entire book of Acts is one great long 28 chapter expose narrative of what it looks like to live in the resurrection effect. After him, he will be with us and always so that we can say, come and see, come and see. Listen, for, forget all the tiny little doctrines that divide for now. We want to be the people of God, the church. Says, just come, just come and see, just come. I, I, I know that you have this feeling about this and this, but just, just come. Just, I know you care about this political thing or that social issue, but just come, come and see Jesus. Come and see that he's alive. And then go with me to tell. That's what we want to be about as the church. And we can do so without fear of death because Easter is a funeral for death. So if you're here this morning and somehow 
you got dragged here. Maybe you've not been to church in a very long time and you forgot what church was like. And you're just here to check the box. I just want to encourage you and invite you to believe. Not to agree necessarily, but so much more than that. I think perhaps for some of you, there is a pull where the Lord God has been dragging, has been drawing, has been wooing you, and there's been all of these resistances that you've built up to say, no, 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 I don't want to give up that, I don't want to lose that. It's not worth keeping. Allow the Spirit of God to cut those tethers and that you would just believe and move all of your weight, all of your being, all of your person off of whatever alleged perceived strength you think you might have and to place it on Him fully, wholly, and totally that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that he lived a perfect life. He offers that in exchange for all of your sin. And it's not fair, but that's grace. I invite you to believe that. For the rest of you, perhaps you've been a believer for a long time, but your awe has leaked and you're still trying to just eke out life until he comes back. No, 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 no. You have no fear of death or anything else. Re-energize your come and see, come and see, and go and tell. This is why we gather at Easter, to have this funeral for death. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you've done, for the fact that the cross was sufficient and that the tomb is empty so that any and all can see inside to see that you, Father, are satisfied, that Jesus is alive, and that your spirit desires to indwell all your people. And so, Father, if there is anyone here this morning on any of these floors or watching remotely that does not know you, I pray that you will move irresistibly by your Spirit and you will lead them into a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus. You would usher them out of death into life, out of darkness into light, and that they would believe, that they would transition from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your Son, Jesus. That they would have the courage to speak with someone about that. That they would move forward as a disciple of Jesus. For the rest of us, God, would you energize us anew with the truth that Jesus is alive, and would you make that truth change us again and again? We pray all these things, Father, the only way we can, in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.